to the final Percolated Media podcast of 2023. Percolated Media presents, I'm Garrett, I am solo, actually no, I have one of my cats is sitting here looking at me as I speak right now, but uh, I'm. this is going to be a solo podcast, at least in the beginning. I, I do have friends coming on, I have Nicolette Olivier, she'll be on here in a bit. We get into our history, We uh, we both have had tastes of screenplay fame and we we both have written things and we both have uh you know we almost worked together in a an official capacity in hollywood at one point we'll we discuss that and after the interview i bring on my good buddy matthew goudreau and uh you know i was going to do a solo review of the iron claw but i decided you know since the two of us have been doing the tag team podcast all year essentially i mean we've taken some breaks here and there it's tough to keep up but you know we're doing the monday night wars as we speak right now we're not getting into the 80s but it was essential to me that i get my fellow wrestling buddy on to discuss what a lot of people are calling (laughs) the little women for guys (laughs) The uh, feel bad movie of the Christmas season, pretty much. But does that mean it's bad? We get into that as well. 
But first, before that happens, I get Nicolette on the line. She is an absolute joy. I think I think people are going to really dig this interview. She, It's not really an interview. It's basically just people catching up. And she has an energy and an enthusiasm that is infectious. And uh, really, really happy to catch up with her. And it's great to, you know, she, she has some stuff out there on YouTube. She has a biography of... Buster Keaton, and she also is working on a book as we speak. And in fact, it might be released. I can't even remember at this point, but so many things going on in this woman's life. And she is one of my best friends in the business. And it was cool to talk to her. So we're going to talk to her first and then get my good old grumpy Goudreau on the line. And no, no mentions of the Jets during that conversation, unfortunately. Um, but here's Nicolette. Nicolette, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a while. See, me and you go way back. I was saying in the intro that me and you go back over 10 years at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking that earlier today as well. I think it's, we've probably known each other for more than a decade at this point. More than a decade. We've seen each other through a lot because I, I went through college. 2000, I graduated college 2012. I moved to... Uh, San Francisco, then I moved to LA, and I started working out there, and in that time, you and I, we almost worked together, yes. I was part of a production company, yeah, a and times. I really, you joined in on a meeting of ours, and um, I was talking to one of the guys in that group, and I really, really wanted to do that script that you gave us, mm-hmm. and God, I was so sad that we did, it was not chosen to go forward, because I loved that script. <laughs> um are you still writing like that? I mean, we'll get to the movie, but are, are you still writing stuff like that? Because that was a brilliant script. <laughs> well, thank you, first of all. Uh, high praise. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> yes, I am still writing. Um, I just kind of uh, shifted my focus back to uh, novel writing and, and book style writing. I, I felt really unfulfilled by screenplay writing um, because it just felt like writing an instruction manual. And it, it, it felt so confining that I didn't feel like I was really able to tell stories the way that I wanted to tell stories. Like, yeah, I could do it, but it wasn't. It was not sparking joy. <laughs> so ultimately, what it was. So yeah, I, I, I am. I am still writing, and I just finished up a book just recently that um, I'm really happy with, and it was a, a labor of love to say the least. So, uh, and I, I intend to continue on my my novel and book writing career now. Finally, buckle down and stick to something. That is crazy because you and I met like 16 sites ago. Oh, <laughs> we started working. Yeah, we worked for the same website for a while, mm-hmm. and then and then we kind of kept in touch. And like, and then like you know, we I started doing my own thing. You started doing your own thing. Right. Um, so you stopped the screenplay writing. Like, what? How did you go from doing what we were doing at that site to screenplay writing? Like, what was the thing that got you going? I was kind of at the same time and it was back in the time you know it was a while ago so I was kind of you know a different person I think at that at that stage but I was trying to get my feet wet pretty much any way I knew how and uh, I really thought I think my mindset at the time was like I could probably skip steps and get super famous right now if I just wrote screenplays you know (laughs) that was sort of my mindset at that time that, you know, you don't have to put in the work. You just have to be really good at it. And then you just give people your script and they make it. So that was sort of, yeah. that's kind of where I think, <laughs> I think that's where my, my immature 
brain was at the time, and I realized pretty quickly that that was not the case. So that's how I kind of – everything just kind of evolved. And I never stuck to one thing because it always seemed like I was getting pulled into the direction of something else creatively, whether it was uh, artwork, digital – like, you know, digital painting to um, – writing novel writing to movie making even making you know vegan soap you know i've done i've done so many things that now i kind of feel like i'm in a place in my life that um i'm ready to kind of go in one direction and and see where that takes me when singing oh god that's the one thing yeah that's my music talent stops at appreciation so that's that's the one thing that that uh, I have never gotten into. But um, th- don't encourage me. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> well, I could probably put some good cure lyrics together if you really want me to. Yeah. <laughs> so y- you thought you were turn big into while you were writing screenplays and yeah like i said you and i had a meeting around the time i was working in la and mm-hmm. uh we were pitching some scripts and wanting to get things going and i really wanted to do that and mm-hmm. it just it just kind of never took off i was sad about that and then you still were doing your own thing like after that like we'll talk about this movie you have like where was the through line like okay i'm done writing these scripts i'm going to do this now well starting back um even further back uh, and uh around 2007 ish 2007 2006 um i started trying to think of like you know i was i was also I was in college and i'm thinking like um i don't like this <laughs> college sucks. so and i just you know i just got out of high school not long before that and i'm like i don't want to do this i don't want to go for any of this stuff this is not the life that i want for myself and it's not going to make anything e- any easier if i hate every moment of my life so yeah. and uh it's i'm you know i'm not a regretful person but it's kind of like damn i wish i'd have put that into like art school or something you know like but but mm-hmm. beyond that i just i was finally i was coming to a point where i was like i was short, not not far from graduating college but far enough that i didn't want to put in you know another year year and a half or so and this the thought kind of came into my head because i'd always been writing ever since i was a little bitty kid you know i've been trying to write novels trying to teach myself to write doing art you know but not really knowing exactly where i wanted to go with it and I happened to, like, have this idea in mind for a novel because, the, well, I guess it would have been a nonfiction novel, which is exactly what I, where I've ended up now. But the the idea was that my mother's mother in the 60s, um, she had three little kids and uh, divorced her husband who was an alcoholic and couldn't support them, my biological grandfather. and But then she it was the 60s and she was a woman with three little kids and needed something to do and somewhere to go. So she ended up meeting another guy. And marrying him, like, right away. Turns out he was also an alcoholic. So she had a type. Jeez. Yeah, she had a type. Um, and, but this guy, he wasn't, like, the tragic alcoholic that uh, that her first husband was. He was, like, this co- kind of co- comedian alcoholic almost. Not, like, happy drunk or anything, but just, like, an idiot. And he would just do dumb <laughs> shit. And, and everybody, anytime we'd ever have a family get-together, from, like, all sides of the family, because, like, other people knew him, too. And people in their neighborhood knew him because he wreaked havoc. Again, not maliciously, just stupidly and drunk. And he, <laughs> he, everybody would get together at all these, any kind of, at Christmas or any kind of family event. 
And out would come the Gordon stories, right? And everybody would be talking about Gordon stories, and they would all be laughing so hard and so uproariously that they couldn't catch their breath. There would be tears running down their faces. You know, people are sniffling. New people are, are dying from these stories. And it was, it was all the time. It was almost like playing a board game. Out come the Gordon stories. Somebody gets the Gordon stories off the shelf. So around that time, I realized you know, I had a camera, you know, and I was thinking, you know, my grandparents are alive and a lot of the relatives and people who knew him. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't, this doesn't need to be in a book. This needs to be in a movie. So that was my first, knowing absolutely nothing. That was, and I filmed it on actual, like, tape, like film. So my first wow, film. Wow, film. Yeah. My first film was called The Gordon Stories, and I just collected all these stories. It was this kind of a, just go around and say, all right, here we're together, tell the stories. And they would all, they would get together and they'd feed off each other. And it was exactly like those moments that, you know, the Christmases and the holidays and things. And everybody been dying laughing. And some of it's, you know, not so funny because alcoholism is not really that great. <laughs> but it's, no. it's, it's kind of a unique situation, right? So around that time, I traveled to Florida to get stories from my relatives. Like, you know, I traveled around and I made this movie. And that's also on my YouTube for free. But it is forewarned. It is, it's very rough. It's a very student film, you know. Mm. I wasn't a student of film, but it's a very student film. So that's where everything kind of, I guess, professionally started for me. And I'd always written, so then I wanted to try to maybe make the jump to screenplays because thinking I was so great. And, and, and that's, that's kind of how I just ended up making more movies and making more art and just kind of, if there's something I want to know, I, I, I teach myself it. I just want to know. So that's how I basically ended up here. So in a combination of having a documentary and a, and a companion book a million years later, it feels like. You know what? I, I heard something. Someone told me a quote that is, has stuck with me, and that's that. That's that. Every everybody's first is not is their worst, or it's not their best. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I and it, it sounds like that's what was true for you. Is that it was your first, but it wasn't exactly your best work. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, it got you. It got you practicing it. It did. That's exactly know? what it and did. And that and that's the important thing. And. Around that time, I'm guessing, when was it that you got, like, obsessed with uh, Buster Keaton? When did that all start? Well, it's actually, I have a section in the book, and I've been asked this a few times, but I, for some reason, completely forgot to talk about this. I have this, I mean, you can, you can lean into things spiritually however you want to. It's, it's up to you, anybody who hears any of it or thinks any of it. But I've really come to the conclusion that Buster has been following me around my entire life one way or another, because I, as a child, was really into Charlie Chaplin films and silent film. I had, like, VHS volumes of his film. But I didn't know Keaton other than just maybe a name, right? So then later in life, I get a little bit older. My favorite book and movie, uh, you know, my tween years, becomes The Outsiders. In The Outsiders in the movie, they have a very prominent scene in a drive-in theater where they're showing Mm -hmm. a clip of him on on screen from one of his beach movies. So, and then I still didn't really notice it. I watched that movie 10,000 million times. Still didn't really take. So then I get up to about 2010, and the dam breaks loose. He thro- kind of throws himself in front of me again, and I just had to, I ate it up. I had to know everything. I had to see everything he'd done. And then I start to realize there's more to this, because as I've done this research, I've been doing working on him for about 13 years at this time. And by now, and I start to do more research about him. I go on this big odyssey to make the film, 
And I also in my life have always done genealogy. It's a thing my family is into. So, um, and it so happens that Buster's father's family was a prominent family in Terre Haute, Indiana, and I'm from Indianapolis. So uh, I couldn't find any direct connection between us that way, you know, just <laughs> to, the, to my great disappointment. But what I did, <laughs> what I did end up finding out is that we had had family friends that had lived out there for years. So probably between the ages, my ages of seven and twenty-one, I probably spent every other weekend at their house. Or, you know, shopping at their local mall, you know, always out there for, you know, all summer long, a lot of times. And it was, they had made their house into kind of a like a kid mecca, like where the kids could play and the adults could sequester themselves away. And so I was always there. And then come to find out um, through my research, because I, I went back there. There had been years since I'd been back there. I go back there, I go to the library. I start looking at plat maps. And I see... I find out that the the land that Buster's father's family used to own was literally later parceled out, and their house was built on that land. So mm. I was like, this is something, you know. <laughs> I really thought, I was like, I'm the chosen mm -hmm. one. And then, <laughs> then maybe about two years ago, I was doing more research um, into his last wife, Eleanor's family, because I just couldn't remember her mother's first name. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go look at my genealogy sources real quick and just get that. And I happened to notice that for the first time ever somehow, her parents, now this is his wife, his last wife, her parents were from a town called Sullivan, Indiana, which is a big coal mining town. Well, on the other side of my family, they pretty much settled Sullivan, Indiana. So they were there at the same time. They all, it was not a big community. And I start freaking out because her last name was Norris. And I'm thinking, I know there's a Norris in my family tree. I know there's one. So I go looking it up. I find out that it wasn't a blood relation, but she was married to, uh, uh, or, or basically what it equates to is there was a woman who was married to her people's family that married into my family, my great-great-grandfather. So ultimately, my great-great-grandfather was like her, was his but Buster's last, last wife, Eleanor's uncle. They didn't know each other because she had, her family had moved away to Los Angeles like when she was, before she was even born. But it was still really weird. I couldn't believe it. I was like actually screaming when I figured that out. And I wrote a, a, like kind of a section in the book about, about that like later, you know, after the book is over, it's sort of like a postscript type of a thing about how weird things kept coming around. So, you know, to come back around here, answer your question. Like that's, I think he's just been around me all this time and that it, I finally just took notice at some point. And, and that's crazy. It is. That's like, that's, yeah. I don't know what else to say about it really. Cause it's like, like I know that lots of people are into Buster and lots of people have written really good books and made documentaries and stuff, but I'm not sure that anybody has these weird connections like I do. So that's at least something for me, you know, that's fun. if nothing else, it's fun. Yeah, what drove you to do that documentary? Because I watched it earlier today, and there's definitely a, you could definitely tell there's some passion behind it. You know, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's you talking to a lot of people who either researched him or knew him um, or knew relatives of his. Mm -hmm. uh, like, how did that idea come about? Like, when we were just like, okay, I want to do a documentary on this. Well, by that time, yeah, it, by that time it would have been my third documentary that I'd ever done. It'd been a few years in between. And I just suddenly felt like, I don't know if it was kind of like a dawning on me, but it's like, I have to tell this story. 
and some of these people are still alive, and they're not going to be for very much longer. And that is the case. Some of the people that knew him that I interviewed in the film have since passed away. Some of the places that I was filming at have been raised. So it was this very unique point in time when Buster was having a – he's very accessible online. That's the thing. He never really was, you know, in the home video circuit or DVDs. But because of his stunt work and his comedy, there's tons of compilations, and all of his work is on YouTube. So he became very accessible in, you know, the early 2010s. And at this time, I'm, like, doing every bit of research I can do. I'm looking into every angle. I'm trying to find people. I'm trying to connect with people who could tell me about more. And it's a very open and, and giving community that want more Buster content. So everybody's like, have you talked to this person? I'm like, no. And then somebody would give me a lead on, on someone that I could talk to. And they would have to talk to this person. I'm like, no. So I would go and go and go until all these people were just agreeing to let me into their houses, sight unseen. And, and wow. you know, there was, there was even – and that's how the book kind of came about as well. There was so much that I couldn't fit into the movie, phone conversations, uh, interviews that didn't ultimately come to fruition, that kind of thing. You may remember the character actor, uh, James Karen. He was the mm-hmm. he was the bad guy in Poltergeist, the – you just moved mm-hmm. the tombstones, didn't you? You left the yeah. Body. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was he, he was a very close friend of Buster and his wife Ellen wow. at the end of their life. Very close. And he was he agreed, he was he acted all the way up to his death practically. But he and I talked on the phone some and he was gonna be in the documentary, but he got a gig at the last minute and he had to call me and cancel. So that was a disappointment. And there were other people I talked to too, like that didn't make it into. I talked to Bill Irwin a little bit. I don't want to, like, overshoot or name drop here, but those are kind of people that, that like... <laughs> no, that's what you're here for. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. But, you know, there, there were a few people that could provide a little bit of insight via fan insight, via personal insight. You know, there were a few people that I talked to that, that didn't make it into the film at all. And, of course, every scene with every person in the film didn't make it. So I still had all this information, and I had been researching independently all these years anyways. So I knew that there was more to tell. You know, and I want to keep making Keaton stuff. I'm definitely taking a Buster break after this book comes out. But I need a, it's been 13 years. I need some space. Yeah, I was going to say 13 years. Yeah, I need some space. But I've got things I want to come out with, like, later down the road. But, um, I, I, you know, I want to do some other stuff, too. But I just felt like at that period of time, it was just, like, almost like magic when I look back at it now. Because it was a whirlwind. It was very, very tri- trying and tribulating to me. It was very difficult, very strenuous. And, but when I came away from it in the end and it was all over with and I could calm down and, you know, the dust settled, I realized, you know, this is, this is something special. So maybe it's like, maybe it's not like an Academy Award winning film, but it's something that no one else was ever able to do. And I specifically wanted to tell the human aspect. I wanted to see how he was remembered contemporarily by, you know, family and friends and fans and historians. And in that, period, I found out that not only was he this mega talent in all these ways, but he was just the kind of guy that people absolutely adored because he was such yeah. a sweetheart and such a good person and so just generous and kind and shirt off your back type of a guy. And and he went through a lot of, you know, things in his own life, but he, he came out for the better. And, and then that's what I that's what I wanted to, to see. I wanted to hear, you know, the human aspect of it. And that's what I tried to carry into the book as well. Yeah, that, uh, the documentary is a good watch. It's only an hour and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's not that long. It, and it's on your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. It's called Oh Buster, Where Art Thou, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. 
That's it. And and it, it is a brisk watch. And you know, I, I I will completely admit my ignorance, Nicolette. I um you know I. Remember studying the era a little bit because when you take film courses in college, you you learn about every era of film. You know, D.W. Griffith, all of mm-hmm. them. And so I had I, I remember clips and things of them, but I didn't really know of the person. And I remember when you started talking that you were doing this documentary and you were posting all the time about it. It, it intrigued me. But seeing the documentary itself, I mean, there are things in that documentary that blew me away. For example, quite literally, you're showing clips from the, his movies. And in one of the clips, you show a bridge blow up, which is like one of the best looking effects I have seen. <laughs> like, like yeah. f- even like compared to modern day, like it's, it's beautifully done. And Buster Keaton had a real knack of making people happy but at the same time he wasn't one of these people who were i mean he was damaged he had Mm -hmm. three marriages and he was he was an alcoholic they talk about that Mm -hmm. but it was really really intriguing to see the way you put all of that together in that one film it was um i liked seeing the human stories and i liked seeing you know everything you didn't have a voice in it which i thought was an interesting choice but it's still you let them do the talking which i thought was good well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's some really kind comments. I actually, somebody asked me about that before. Like, why did you put yourself in it? Because it is so common to inject yourself into these stories. And that, that idea had come up. But then I thought, no, I need to give the floor to these people. I want I wanted to hide in the background and let them just feel like they're talking to me. Just like the same vibe that my first movie had, where it's just let the people talk. You know, prompt them with questions, but just let them talk. That's what matters, not hearing from me, but hearing from them. And that's what I, I really wanted to do. And you mentioned that, that, that bridge falling scene of the train going through. Up to that point in his career, he was independent at that time, so he's basically calling the shots. That is one of the most famous stunts probably ever made, at least in the silent era, because up to that point, that was the most expensive large-scale stunt work that had ever been done. So um, that that was kind of the reputation he had for for going bigger and bigger and bigger. And you've probably seen the scene in one of his other films where a whole facade of a house falls down around him, uh-huh. and he's standing yeah, yeah. in the face of the window. Well, that that was another thing that that and it, that that's a whole you know different can of worms. But he insisted that he got to do that. His crew tried to talk him out of it to the best of their ability. You know, the prop is is somewhere near six tons. He's insisting that the math is going to work. They don't want to do it. They're sure he's going to die. And he didn't exactly get it right either. The, the window comes down and brushes his arm, but he stays in character. He came that close to, you know, being Hollywood history at that point. Amazing. So that was just how his mind worked. He wanted to do more. He was a technician to the hilt. He loved hmm. the idea of the technical aspect of it. And when people ask me, or when I'm trying to tell people who, who maybe have only heard his name or know very, very little about him, what I usually kind of gets him in the mindset of is his contemporary most well-known was Charlie Chaplin. They, they, and they did work together a little bit late in their careers, but mm-hmm. they, um, if you, if you look at their, they're always compared who is better, but they're, even though they're completely different, but Chaplin was more like the kind of filmmaker that, that um, Steven Spielberg is more emotionally attached mm-hmm. more more like people oriented. Whereas Buster was more like James Cameron. He had a much more technical aspect. If the technology didn't exist, he built it. If, it. if he didn't know how to do it, he figured it out. You know, he wasn't going to let these little things stop him. And back then in the, in the silent films, they were writing the book. 
You know, they were the mm-hmm. ones they were they were inventing the the medium right before everybody's eyes. So he he definitely didn't let anything he, he let you know this prop fall down around him at the expense of his life. <laughs> so he was not about to sacrifice quality for something that he thought that he could do. In an age where we are making films with our phones, mm-hmm. pretty much. It is so amazing to look at where all of it came from. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, at the primitive part of filmmaking. And that's what really intrigued me about film in general. You know, when I studied it in college, uh, it was just something that the, the idea of putting this out there for somebody to see. And, you know, the art of film is what me and you fell in love with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And the primitive part of filmmaking is what really intrigued me about looking at that era. But I will tell you this, Nicolette. <laughs> I have worked on one documentary in my life, okay? Mm-hmm. And I know by the end of working on that documentary, I was – you mentioned this earlier, but I was done with it. Yeah. I'm like, no more Millennium in my life. I, I'm done with it. I'm never going to watch it again. Like, all of these people can go away. It's out of my life. You, my dear, finish this documentary, and two years later, you're writing a goddamn book. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh, no. I know, right? Like, blood for punishment. Jesus. That is kind of what it feels like. You know, it did, I don't want to get, like, lofty about it, but it did feel like, once it was started, I kind of really did feel like it was a calling. You know, other people will say that in their life, too, about what their their meaning of their life is or whatever. And I'm not sure that this is going to be, like, the the be-all, end-all of my own legacy, but I just felt like it was a story that I had to tell in my way. Because other people have done it, they've done it their way, but I wanted to approach it in a way that I had never seen done. Because, you know, when I, when we were talking earlier about how I even got here, I, I, I just ate up everything. You know, I, I watched all of his films, I studied all of his stunt work, I studied his comedy style, I read all the books I could get my hands on. I had to know everything. And that just carried through. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. So as I made the film, the film and the book kind of, you know, worked out concurrently. The writing of the film I worked, or the writing of the book, rather, has taken about the last five years of my life. And, and again, another really big labor of love, to to put it lightly. Uh, So it, it, they worked together in a kind of simpatico way. And that's why I consider the book to be the companion to the movie. Because, um, it does. It centers on the last couple of decades of his life, the most stable time in his life, the happiest time in his life. He was surrounded by friends and family. He was getting in on television, which was just getting started. And what set him apart from his contemporaries and a lot of the people that he'd worked with before is they thought TV was a fad. They thought it was beneath them. They didn't want any part of it. They thought they were better than that. So they would have rather just, you know, go off into the sunset than be part of it. But he loved technology and innovation. He actually, there's some quotations from him where he's predicting streaming services, you know, and, wow. and he died in 1966. So this is yeah. years before. But it's incredible. Yeah, he saw the potential in things. and So ahead of his time. Yeah, he really was. And he saw the potential yeah. in things in a way that, like, he, he again, like, like I felt, like he had to be a part of it. He couldn't just let this passively get by him. He had, you know, there's a, there's this, this notion of him, you know, being like a, you know, starving artist type of a thing, living off of his wife's income at that time. And that just wasn't true at all. 
it was he was working at MGM. He was still getting work. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't at his creative height that he had once been. But once TV came through, he absolutely went for it. He saw the potential. And then in 1951, because TV was for local markets everywhere. It, it wasn't, you know, coast to coast yet. So, But 1951, late in the year, they figured out how to make it go coast to coast. And what this ultimately did, plus him getting a, a, a really good role in the movie um, in the good old summertime, an audience has, hadn't seen him in a very long time. Um, and that was a full-color movie, a great big deal movie. Like, he started to be able to, between that and then going national with these programs, he started to be visible again. And this visibility it introduced new audiences to his comedy and his sight and vision. And the old ones who had seen his films back in the day. And we forget that um, because we we can go back and watch something a million times. We can look at gifts. We can look at clips. Movies originally were not meant for longevity. They had no intention yeah. of mm. putting them out there to be rewatched or kept. So every single silent film that we have before you know people got savvy about saving and preserving them is a miracle. And we really only have about twenty percent of the entirety of what all was made. So eighty percent mm-hmm. of that era is gone forever. You know, there are still little bits being found here and there. There was a recent piece of a, a Theta Bear's version of Cleopatra that was recently found. But, uh, and, and it's been verified. It's just this little clip. But, but we have to think about, like, he, only his filmography is almost complete. Things of his were almost all the way saved aside from one small short. And that is a miracle. That's a goddamn miracle as far as I'm concerned. Because, yeah. um, he never, you know, it, it, it could be gone with the wind just like everything else. But, but, but that's kind of how I came. Part of it, I feel like I have to, I have to do this. Like, so I have to endure it. I have to, I have to go through the pain of creation. And so, yeah, they were very difficult, difficult tasks for me for sure to pull off. But you know, when the hindsight, it's time for hindsight to come around, then I feel really good about it. The film's on your YouTube site. It's called Oh Buster, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. Intriguing documentary. Now, w- the book is, w- you said it's coming out. When is it coming out? November 25th. November 25th. So this will be, yeah, this will be out right before that book's coming out. So I I, I hope I'm getting a copy. Sure. No problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I look forward to reading it. And I, I do need to ask, after completing the film, how much more did you feel you had to tell after you were done with the film? Like, what was the point where you were like, you know what? I have so much, I have so much content here. I need to do something else with it. And that's when you did the book. Is the book in quote form? Like, do you have quotes on some pages and then some you don't? How exactly are you, have you formatted that? And how did you come to the conclusion that I need to write a book too? Well, yeah, that's actually a really good question because this seems to kind of confuse people. I, I, I try to explain it the best I can, but I don't know if I'm getting it across exactly. Um, I also, you know, I've always been a fiction writer, and I, my strength has always come from, you know, the way of playing God in fiction. If you want something to change, it changes. If you make a mistake but you end up liking it, you go with it. You can go on tangents. You don't have to be stopped by anything unless maybe you're writing some historical fiction and you need to get some dates right or places right or something. But, But this was a nonfiction story and I had never done nonfiction before. You know, I'd have some journalistic experience, but that wasn't this. And there's so many good, you know, documentary, documentary type books, like biographies about him that are just like, here's what he did. Here's what he said. 
I didn't really want to invent the wheel. And I wanted it to feel the same way that the movie had felt, because the movie was, you know, nonfiction. The movie was a documentary, but I also was able to try to make it as humanistic as possible. So I wanted to keep going with that and not fight against my my skills. So when I realized that, yeah, there's still so much to tell that I didn't get to tell, and it wasn't so much regret, just like, uh, what am I going to do? I've got, I've got so much more to say. And there's so much more information and facts to go on. So that's how I decided I need to write the book, and I need to I need to go on with this period of life. And the reason I centered on that period of his life is because the the people that I talked to knew him then. They didn't know him, you know, a hundred years ago, and were still alive. So that was stuff that I could verify, and I could I could basically and sometimes get his schedule down to you know what was happening throughout the day when I was you know doing research. So this was still stuff that I could put this these data points in without it being like rewriting books that had already been written. So I decided to lean into my fiction sensibility, uh, but write nonfiction. So what I ultimately came out of it was with was uh, a nonfiction novel. So it reads like a novel, like if it was fiction, but everything in it for the most part is true. I really tried. Interesting. Yeah. I really tried not to, impart too much because I did that in the beginning I get I get go on creative tangents and I'd be like I wrote this in the wrong time from the wrong person in the wrong perspective and then I didn't have to leave a bunch of work and you know you only do that a few times before you realize stop doing this you know so that's that's where I came from and people are like what is a nonfiction novel so I always say it's like think about like Alex Haley's roots or uh Truman Capote's in cold blood like you know obviously I'm not those guys but um, <laughs> but but that's that's the idea because it's kind of a really understated uh, genre of writing because you know you either you get the biography or you get the fictionalized version. But it's like when you watch a biopic, you know, a movie, a biographical movie. Sometimes they're really true to form. Sometimes they're nowhere near. So my whole thought process was get it as realistic as possible. Get it as verifiably correct as possible. Let people go through and, and try and prove you wrong if they want to, but, but come as close to reality as you possibly can based on what you have learned. And I think that's what I bring to the project that's different than, you know, anything else that's been done before. What an interesting approach. And, you know, as somebody who has read your writing, um, you know, I can – I'll say I, I'm sure it's handled very well because you are a very talented writer. Thank you. Um, maybe you'll prove me wrong when I get a copy. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> what's, the, what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Another New World, which kind of reflects okay. that his, his transition into television and back into mainstream film. He just he went from, um, you know, vaudeville in his early life to the beginnings of film to sound, the color, to, you know, television he just he was on the forefront of everything and this this period of his life was just another another version of that just on to another new world all right so you have spent 13 years of your life with buster mm-hmm. nicolette where do you go from here well i'm currently at work i'm i'm, I'm not going to say i'm done with film i'm always going to have ideas about film but I, i'm putting that on the shelf for now and i'm focusing more on writing and, um, you know, I always do art and stuff like that, but I, I am Yeah, focused. I've seen your art. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I'm, I'm fo- I, I designed and painted the cover for the book as well, so. 
Um, oh, nice. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's one of my paintings. And so I, I'm focused on, on writing right now, um, unless the wind takes me somewhere else, which I hope it doesn't because I just want to write. <laughs> I just want to write mm-hmm. for a while. So right now I'm, I'm getting things together. And I have this habit of, of starting projects like 20 and 25 years ago and then just keeping working on them but never, never actually getting to the stage of finish. And where I yeah, this is this is why so, you and I yeah, this is why you and I connected twelve years ago because I I in the exact same way, <laughs> like I've had an idea for eleven years and I'm finally I've gotten the first draft done of it. I okay. want to publish it as well. Yeah, I'm working on publishing my book too, and it's like <laughs> you're t- you're you're preaching to the choir yeah. is what I'm trying to it's say. It's just it, it just. I think that's just how it happens with creatives. There's some things you can just, you know, like an, like a painting, I can finish that in a few weeks and it's done and it's over with. And if I don't like it, I could paint it again if I wanted to or something. But when it comes to storytelling and you're going through your notes, you're like, oh, this part's really good. I really connected here. But this part and these people, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. And I really need to think about this more. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing right now because to answer your previous question, I have had a story in the works for a good 20 years, and it's, I, it's, I don't want to say it's horror, because horror is such a blanket, you know, mm-hmm. genre, there's so many subgenres, it really falls more into the paranormal thriller type of thing, I, and it was actually in script form originally, I wrote it as a script, and the people that I shared it with said, this is fucking terrifying, so, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> nice. I was like, well, I need to go somewhere with this, I think, and I've always been kind of tumbling and you know, tumbling it in my mind, and tumbling, never forgetting it, and I would add notes to it, and add notes to it, and finally about Five or six years ago, I got a first draft written in, in novel form. And I thought, like, okay, like, this is pretty good. And, and then, but then, I, you know, I got distracted by other things. And I, I, I had another book in the, in the same vein that, that was under the same circumstances that I've been trying to write since I was a teenager, like a kind of a historical Western type of a thing. Oh, nice. And I got a first draft of that one done. And that one's meant to be like a longevity, like serial type of a situation. So at that time, I was doing a lot of writing, and I got two drafts done. And then now that I'm taking a buster break from everything, because um, I've got buster projects planned forever. Like, I'm going to eventually release a Keaton family cookbook. and, and so Oh, a, wow. A book of, that sounds awesome. Yeah, a book of art and stuff like that. But, you know, that's down. Send the, send the cookbook our way. My fiancé will make some recipes from it. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's down. You know, that's coming. That's, so I've got, I'm going to be doing buster stuff forever, but... In the spirit mm-hmm. of getting to do anything else for a little while so just, and, and, and go back to fiction, I'm working on, it's called The Big Bad Wolf, and it's a, um, like, again, a paranormal thriller type of a thing, and I, I, I just started going back through my original draft and making some notes and, and, and kind of getting back into that. And then I haven't had much time lately because I'm doing, you know, so much for this book release, but that's where I, I hope to be next. I hope that in in... in not too far into the future that I will be able to release that to the public and and then kind of ping pong back and forth between not Buster and Buster stuff for I don't know ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you self-publishing? Did you find a publisher? Did you send your another publisher some pages and they were like, "Let's go ahead and do this," or is this all self-published? My original plan was to go the traditional route because I thought that I needed to. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I started doing some research on it, and I found out, you know, this really is not for me. Because when you give your work to a, a publisher, essentially you're selling it to them, or, mm-hmm. you know, to, for, to them for, like, you know, at the lowest cost to them. 
they don't have to give you any kind of timeline when they release it, and you've sold it to them. So they can make any change they want to to it. And I was pulling my hair out over this book, making sure that I came as close as possible to reality and that the, 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 the data points all fit in the way that they were supposed to. And I thought, like, it's not the kind of book that's got a car chase in it. And I figured, like, if I give this to a publisher and, they, you know, if anybody's going to put a car chase in it, that's me. You know, if anybody yeah. wants to, you know, pump it up and make it something mm-hmm. else, that should be me. But I, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't in good conscience give it to somebody else who didn't know as much as I did. You know, there are other experts out there, too. But if, if we're talking about a publishing company that exists to make money for themselves, you know, and, and doesn't even actually have to release it, and, and they can change the cover, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. It's just kind of, yeah. it felt like a nightmare scenario, you know, like where you're like, I can't do that, I can't do that, that's the wrong thing to do. But now with the ease of access of self-publishing, I thought, you know, like this can all come down to um, the way I want it. I can present the picture and the portrait of things the way I want them to. And I can I can show you what the, his family, too, were going through in their lives at the same time. It's not just about Buster. It's about Buster and his family. It's primarily about Buster. But, but nobody, they've always just been, he was very close with his family. And they've always just been like footnotes you know, in, 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 the, in the history of his life, and especially in other docu- or, uh, uh, biographies, rather. And so I figured, like, I need to tell their story as well because they meant so much to him. They are a part of his story. So it, it, it looks at a lot of it, the Keaton family as a whole, but also, you know, primarily is about Buster. So I just felt like I can't let somebody else who doesn't know these people the way I know them and has collected all the info that I've collected do with what they will. So self-publishing mm-hmm. really felt like the way to go. And the, the level of control you get with that, I realize that some people want to go the traditional route. And, and that works really well if you're like a, a sports person or a, you know, a murderer mm-hmm. or a celebrity or something like that. But for me, who, who had bounced around from, you know, film and, 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 and art and writing, I didn't really have the credibility that maybe a celebrity, you know, might have. So uh-huh. I figured that, Traditional publishing would be a waste of time for me, and I would run the risk of selling off content that that I I work so hard to get right. And I know it's not still not going to be for everyone. I know that there are people who are going to disagree and are going to argue and are going to say I got it wrong, and I'm fine with that. If you, you know, if, mm. if, if people want to do that, I I don't mind the criticism at all. Just so long that like you know they took something away from the story, whether the the hate or love, I really don't mind it one way or the other. But that, that, yeah. that, to answer your question, I felt like it had to be, once I kind of came to my senses about it, I felt like it had to be self-published if I was going to guarantee that integrity that I intended. That's what I was aiming for as well. That's what I'm kind of aiming oh, for. Oh, I'm an advocate for it. I said all the way. Yeah. Go all right. Above. Well, then I will do my own research. And as far as everyone else is concerned, Nicolette, fuck them. <laughs> Who cares? Do it your way, you know. One more time, go ahead and give the name of the movie, give the name of the book. Okay, the, the name of the documentary is uh, Oh Buster, Where Art Thou? And that is on YouTube. You can watch it for free. And the follow-up companion book is called Another New World, and that is out November 25th. November 25th, and you have so many cards on the table. I do. <laughs> Man, like every time I turn around and you're posting about something else you're doing, I'm like, <laughs> you know, yeah. I... I do, you know, podcasting is kind of a full-time job with me mm-hmm. because I edit these to to the hilt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we, we record for a while and I 
trying to get this book going as well. You, I have so much respect. Last year I interviewed a author who did the same thing while she was a single mom as well. Wow. It's just like, I don't know how people, you people find the time to do all of this, but you, I will always respect because no matter what I was doing, you always supported me and my projects. Oh. You were, you've always been there. You've always checked in and said, how's this going? How's that going? And uh, I, I really, really appreciated having you in my life. And the fact that you have this going on, I'm very, very happy for you. And I wish you the best of luck with it, okay? Oh, thank you. It's such a kind thing to say. I'm, I'm happy to have you in my life as well. We've known each other for so long. And I, it's, it's good to have people in the, doing the same types of things that you're doing because you can understand and commiserate with them. And they know they know what it's like to bring something creative into the world. So I appreciate you, buddy. Yeah. I appreciate you. And uh, one more question. Do you, do you still keep in contact with the uh, Keaton family, like the nephew and all that? Are you still friends with them? Um, not uh, – no. They were really just part of the film. Uh, shoot, part of the film. And it, it, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't – you know, they were they were part of that kind of time in, in, the, in space. And, and uh, after that was kind of all done, it was kind of all done. There are um, – you know, there was a lot more to do in between all of then and now. Mm-hmm. So, so no, no, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. All right. Well, we've come a long way from reviewing films, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for us both that we are, we are, we are on our own. Yeah, me too. Our own Wish you be- best of luck, Nicolette. Well, Thank how do you, you say your last name? Olivier? Yeah, Olivier, like Lawrence. Olivier. All right. You take care, and no matter what you have coming out, no matter how many cards you have on the table, you are always welcome to come and talk. And who knows, maybe we'll throw you on a retrospective with us, and you can argue with us about okay. movies. Yeah, I'd love to. That sounds great. <laughs> All right. You take care. We'll talk soon. Okay. And I would like to thank Nicolette for joining me, uh, which pretty much just ended up being a discussion amongst friends and catching up. Uh, to go check out her YouTube channel. She's got some funny videos. She's got a whole bunch of Buster Keaton stuff, as she mentioned. Um, and I look forward to what she's doing, what she's going to do next, because it feels it feels like she's she's run the course with this, and it's behind her, and she's ready to move on to other things, and I'm excited to see that. Uh, Matt, were you a uh, Buster Keaton fan? Are you, have you are you familiar with his work? Well, unlike you, I didn't live through his era, so <laughs> that's. Uh, I'll, I'll that's take the layups when I can get them because they're they're <laughs> few and far between at this moment. It's funny yeah. of the. You know how there's like the, the WWE, WCW camp? There is a, for film geeks, there is Buster Keaton versus Charlie Chaplin. And I am yeah. staunchly in the Buster Keaton side. So to answer your question, yes. I was surprised because she's got a documentary on uh, YouTube. And I was watching and preparing preparing for it. And we discussed it in the interview. But there's a shot in that there's a shot that she puts out there of a huge explosion on a bridge. I swear to God, if Spielberg and Lucas had taken notes on that, it would have been so much better. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would have been so much better at the end. Like it was so well done. Uh, Just no time for love, Mr. Uh, Mr. Keaton. You know, it's funny. There's the documentary that you guys had talked about, but there's really not been a, and you would think, because they did the Charlie Chaplin movie, what, 30 years ago? That there has not been a attempt to do Buster Keaton. Yeah, yeah, we talk about that too. Um, she's a wonderful person, and like I mentioned in the interview, there was a point in time when we were about ready to work together, and that kind of fell through, but uh, it was nice talking to her again. But why did I bring Matt back on? Why did I pretty much drag him by his feet and put him, post him up to uh, join me once again on my Percolated Media Presents show? 
It's because once again, the same week I am releasing this particular podcast, a movie is released that we both have seen, and there is no way in hell I was not going to bring him on to discuss it. I was going to review it solo at the end and just give my thoughts, but maybe we'll discuss it again at the year-end show. Maybe we won't. But there's a movie called The Iron Claw that I thought, Matt, is it safe to say that, you know, given the fact that we've been doing this wrestling show for the past year or so, that it was pretty much a, a, a given deal that we would be reviewing this together? It was almost a guarantee. If yeah. anything, it would have been, if not for this, you know, your special edition type of shows, we probably would have done it as a extension of that series. I thought but about that. I think the reason yeah. why we went with this is because the time frame that this movie depicts falls outside of our current, you know, uh, demographic of doing wrestling in the 90s. But even if we were not doing this, uh, I would have seen this movie regardless because I it piqued my interest the moment it was announced. And this is something that uh, timing is always instrumental with releases and right around the time this went into full production there was the actual i don't know if it was dark side of the ring or there was some other like documentary specifically about the bunker. it was dark side oh, it was dark side okay um so I, I think they're they're kind of good companion pieces but look i mean outside of the wrestler this is a sport quote-unquote that does not get its own subgenre of movies like boxing or baseball or any of these other, you know, more through-and-through sports have gotten. You know, wrestling movies are few and far in between. Yeah, and I was going to get into that with you. You know, growing up, <laughs> like, I, I, I would have died for a movie like this when I, was, when I was watching wrestling at its peak back in the 80s. And, but as a result, like, we got stuff like there was a terrible – women's wrestling movie with Peter Falk of all people uh, way back in the 80s about a ta- about a woman tag team um, that's just it was so bad and <laughs> I remember watching on cable one night and saying oh this is all we get and then of course No Holds Barred comes out and I would love to do a commentary of that or something at one point if we ever get this Patreon yeah that and Ready to Rumble we probably Ready to Rumble we're, we're yeah. going to have once we get to WCW 2000, because it's as big of a dumpster fire as that company was at the time, so it kind of made all the more sense. And to be honest, that movie is better than like 90% of the pay-per-views they did in the year 2000. You know, I have never seen that movie, so maybe we'd have to do that. Um, maybe I'll watch it when we get to it. But I mean, like, wrestling has always, and we'll talk about this both on this show and the... Uh, our tag team shows. Wrestling has always been looked down upon by those who are not in the industry themselves or fans. And it's it's tough to not to not justify that because this is an industry that's been plagued with young deaths and drugs. Mm. And, you mm. know, look at the Benoit situation. I think that was the smoking yeah. gun for a lot of wrestling detractors to say, you know, it's, you know, barbaric or or cheap, whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, this is a a very unique art form, much like movies. You know, wrestling is about storytelling at the end of the day. And I think that's why a lot of 
I think wrestling is actually very similar to movie making, where, you know, it's about captivating an audience. You know, wrestlers are very much actors. You know, it's predetermined. And when it's done well, it is up there with going to see, you know, something like The Searchers or Citizen Kane, at least mm-hmm. when it's when it's done at its peak. But I think because of the... The, the reputation that professional wrestling has is part partially why there's not a lot of prestige movies about wrestling. Uh, you know, with the exception of the Aronofsky movie, which was lauded at the time. But looking at that movie, it does not depict wrestling in the best of light. You know, it's about a guy no. who was well past his prime, had been ravaged by the effects of the business, and was trying to do his one last comeback. You know, that... Even that movie, which was nominated for Oscars and was like up for all kinds of awards, still was not the most glamorous depiction not at of the all. industry. Um, <clears throat> and I would argue that this isn't either. Um, when I heard, Matt, that A24 of all studios was putting a movie about the Von Erichs together, it really, at some point, it, it kind of piqued my interest, but at the same time I'm thinking, how are they going to do this and not just depress the entire world. Because um, A24 is a very well-respected studio. Um, you know, really made its mark back in 2016 with The Witch. And it's ever since then, it, it has, one after another, put out movies that just are different than the norm. You know, if people are looking for things outside of the superhero genre to gravitate towards in the years since, it was A24. So they get their hands on this. And I know I've told you, but I don't think I've told the audience yet that this Von Erich story is something that I have known about for years and years. Because when I was, I would say about 12 years old, my grandmother knew what I wanted for Christmas, knew that I loved wrestling. She got me a year's subscription to... Uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which was a huge magazine that was, it was kayfabe. You know, they had kayfabe interviews with wrestlers and things, but they told stories in there as well. Like, for example, that was where I read about the Hacksaw Doug and Iron Sheik arrest back in 1987. That really broke kayfabe, and it pretty much ruined uh, the Iron Sheik's career and almost did with Hacksaw Duggins as well, although it took a different turn and he ended up being pretty successful. He was geared to make a huge run at titles. That didn't happen. That was where I first heard about that story. And so when um, when I was starting to get that in the mail, I'd read, you know, all about the Hogan-Savage feuds and all these things and things that I was really interested in. But then I would turn to this Von Erich story. And there were, art, there were articles upon articles about how, quote-unquote, Von Erich curse affected this family. And I heard all about the suicides, all about the intestine the way the way um one of them dies by his intestine literally explodes um all of these things i I had heard about before so i was thinking how are they gonna do this story and then they cast zach afron and i'm like okay um how are they really gonna do this story if they're gonna cast this guy who you know is not really known for taking huge dramatic leaps like this um so i was really curious going in but my mind, my wrestling mind, the way I thought about this story was also like, uh, can they actually do this story justice? 
What were you thinking when you heard there was a Von Erich movie coming out? Were you familiar with the story at the time? Were you familiar, other than the Dark Side of the Ring, were you familiar with anything that was that is depicted in this movie and beyond? No, I've I've only seen the documentary and I saw the there was a world class championship wrestling DVD uh-huh. that was put out. I want to say probably ten fifteen years ago. That was it was more about the promotion than the Von Erichs, uh, but you can't they're synonymous with one another. So it did touch on it, but as far as the 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 family dynamics and a lot of the the circumstances surrounding what happened, I only knew the bottom line. You know, I, I knew what happened, but I was I wasn't aware of a lot of the the history of you know these guys working with like Harley Race and Ric Flair. About mm-hmm. certainly, I didn't know how far down the rabbit hole you could go with just the family dynamics alone. <clears throat> because not knowing that. My question was, was this just going to be two hours of misery porn? Uh, and and I, I use that term sort of slightly because there are a lot of movies that, of this ilk, where you know something bad's going to happen and just all about showing you what that is. Uh, and, and the fact that it's Christmas, I'm like, do I really want to go see this? Um, and, and was this going to be something that had some substance to it, or was it just yeah. a Cliff Notes companion piece to the Dark Side of the Ring and all mm-hmm. the documentaries that have been made? So I was skeptical. I don't know this director's uh, work necessarily. I had questions about casting Zac Efron. I had questions about um, some of the marketing. I, I had only seen the trailer, uh, which they only put out a couple months ago. Like This movie did not have the biggest promotional push. Part of that is because A24... They have their hands in so many productions at this point. Um, and ever since The Witch and these movies, like it seems like they're sort of the new Weinstein company when it comes to the Oscar race. Um, does this belong in that ilk? We'll see. But um, I was I was curious to go in. Uh, th- this was not something that I was I was dreading watching or or anything of that sort. One big thing that I got out of it. And I mentioned it to my friend who I went to the movie with when we were walking to the car is, um, the wrestler really depicts, like you mentioned, a guy at the end of his career. And it's a really depressing look at how he handles the end of his career. Pretty much. He gets what I thought going in was, how are they going to take their approach to, as you brilliantly mentioned earlier the the outline of what this movie is about which is professional wrestling and they do it in a pretty smart way because in with kevin von eric who is played by zach efron in his first date um the uh, pam the woman he ends up marrying uh asks him you know why do you do this stuff that's fake and kevin von eric gets it out there gets it out right away he says what we do is not fake you know and I love that, Matt, because I, I love the fact that, you know, looking at it from the outside, you're seeing these dudes in underwear fucking f- play fighting, and it could be looked at as so silly. And it is by so many people. You mentioned it earlier. Like, it's not taken that seriously. But the people within the business, the people who love the business, they take it very serious. And this is their lives. And so that is really the only real mention 
And there are some matches and things depicted in this, but I thought that was a good way of getting that out of the way. What do you think about that? I think this movie breaks down the barrier of being a wrestling movie in the first half. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a movie of two halves. Uh, the first half is really a... It, it's a it's a family character study that uses professional wrestling as the backdrop. Uh, and I think that's that's brilliantly done because this movie has to be accessible to people who are not who are not fans. And full disclosure, I saw this movie in a full theater and looking around, you know, a lot of older couples, people younger than me, I guarantee you not all of them are wrestling fans. In fact, I would say very few are. Mm-hmm. Just based on, you know, I can hear people's reactions uh, and kind of murmuring back and forth. And this is also a movie that does not go so far down the rabbit hole of wrestling lingo. Like, they don't talk about, you know, the importance of kayfabe. No. Or, you know, going over, things like that. It's kept it what you need to know. The, The importance of being a champion. They talk about different promotions, which is important because that's no longer how wrestling works. It's become much more monopolized thanks to Vince McMahon and the WWE. Uh, So I I think that calling out, yeah, there's nothing fake about it as far as the effects on the body. It's certainly the mind as the, as is the case with this movie was a great decision to get, non-wrestling fans bought into this the story absolutely yeah um and you know and i didn't even you know the wrestler depicts a lot of you know what goes on quote unquote behind the scenes of the business and this has one scene of everybody discussing okay you're gonna go off the ropes you're gonna drop kick and then you're gonna roll outside the ring and i think the only reason they do that is because they had somebody within the family who was joining this match who wasn't really too familiar with um, with what they were going to do. And so I think it, it does it does it judiciously and it does it very well. Um, and then you're right. That's pretty much the first that's pretty much what they do in the first half. And you know, I thought maybe we were going to see scenes of them partying with Michael Hayes and the Freebirds and things. And pretty much everything you see in the trailer is what you see of the Freebirds in this movie. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's a big. That feud was a big, huge. Part of, yeah, they they of the promotion. yeah they slammed uh, one of their heads in the in the cage. You know, years before the WCW did it with Ric Flair, and yeah, it was a big angle. It really got everybody on the map and got people in that organization talking. And I think they do a pretty good job in this as well of saying just how big they were in the state of Texas, and they were looked at as heroes out there. You know. And I mean, you know, you look at wrestling families, you know, there's there's certain ones that just come to mind. You know, the Hearts mm-hmm. in Canada, uh, the Guerreros in Mexico, the Von Erichs really were the, them and the Funks are the, when you think of like Texas, uh, they're kind of the two that are most uh, recognizable. But again, what I appreciate is that I don't think this movie uh, talks down to casual audiences who could give two shits about wrestling while at the same time not being there just to appease like the smart marks because you know, the, the wrestling scenes that are depicted here are shot in a cinematic way. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not, uh, while it is like, you know, smoky gyms and, you know, some larger uh, venues, which are true to historical, um, nothing about this has the pageantry 
of modern day wrestling. It's it's very it's attentive to the period. Uh, you know the fonts they use for you know the different uh, shows that they were running, the 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 style of promos and camera work. It's all pretty authentic, except for one thing. Uh, this uh, I don't know if this bothered you as much, but I, I got to get it out here now. Uh, the one wrestler that everybody knows, because uh, some of these are pretty deep cuts, like the Sheik. Uh, you know, Harley Race is a name people know, but Ric Flair is like up there with Hulk Hogan as far as wrestlers that, that people I was going to get to this that people yep. know. Yep, that guy was horrible. He was so bad, like really bad. He was off stage with the Von Erickson. He was saying he was going to go to a bar and things. I thought that was fine, but yeah, when he's doing his promo and he's doing the woos and things, oh my god, dude, I cringed. I fucking cringed. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I think it's going to bother more more wrestling fans uh, than – I listened to somebody who compared it to – they ever watched the show Young Rock, the way they portrayed the wrestlers on that? Uh, yeah, it was a little – because everyone else don't get the – outside of Harley Race, I thought that guy was pretty good. Um, I thought he was good too, actually. Uh, but everyone else, it's, you know, not a whole lot of dialogue. Like Bruiser Brody, they talk to in the back, as you mentioned. Uh-huh. Uh, this wasn't spot the wrestler, thankfully. Like, because I didn't want to go in here and see like, oh, that's clearly supposed to be, you know, so and so. Because like, you know, Jerry Jarrett's at the end of the movie, but you know, that's not a, a super big name, certainly for the um, uh, for for casual fans. Um, so outside of Ric Flair, you know, I thought the actual way wrestling itself was portrayed was very well done. And David was supposed to be the star. David was going to be the one who went on to huge things and maybe got signed by Vince. And who knows what he was going to go on to. And, yeah, and then he dies suddenly in Japan. And I, I just could not imagine that. Um, yeah, that was one bad thing, bad mark I was going to give this movie. Another bad bit of casting from my from my end. The casting of Carrie Von Erich. Um, now, this is a dude... Who he had a brief run in the WWF, you know, from 1992, 1993, I believe, 92. And he was, he looked like he was chiseled from stone. And this guy they got to be Kerry Von Erich looked nothing like him, number one. He was in shape, but he didn't look like he was the Olympian that they depicted him as in this movie. And I thought a lot of the scenes he was in, he was pretty bad too. Um, at least from somebody who is more familiar with Carrie than any of the other Von Erichs. What do you think about that? So that didn't that didn't bother me because I think w- with these type of you know biopics, I don't want a hundred percent authenticity. Um, and I also think those physiques back then it was a lot harder to do now because of you know the the stigma around steroids. Um, so I, I think it, it would have been significantly harder for, you know, Jeremy Allen White to get to that that size. Um, and I'd rather that versus someone who's pancaked in prosthetics where you sort of lose the person. Because uh, I feel like we would have gotten that if this Chris Hemsworth Hulk Hogan movie ever gets made. Um, I mean, look, he's significantly, he's of the size where he could pull it off, but... 
his performance didn't bother me. Um, I don't feel like there was anyone in this movie that I thought was miscast outside of the Ric Flair impersonator. Um, one of them I didn't even know was British until I listened to interviews after the movie. Um, and I also like that this was not a movie that they... I mean, look, Zach Efron's a name, but he's not... He doesn't have the pedigree, no pun intended, of, you know, a big movie star. Uh, I like that they cast people who, yeah, they're well-known, but this wasn't something that they had to put big names on to sell. The only thing I knew Fritz from was that Mindhunters uh, show on Netflix that Fincher did. That's literally the only thing I knew him from. And I thought he was pretty good, too. Although, yeah, here's another knockout. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, he's been in a lot of Fincher movies. Like, he's in Alien 3. Yeah. He's in Fight Club. Um, but, yeah, if you've seen movies, you've spotted that actor before. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, uh, we'll talk about him in Creep Show 2 eventually. Uh, oh, that's right. I forgot yeah, he was in that. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I, don't, I don't remember which segment he was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it was the one... Um, the one with Old Chief Woodenhead. Mm-hmm. I think he's the, yeah. Which is that's not a great segment either. But you could say that about almost every segment in that movie except for one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought he was uh purp- purposely monstrous without being too overboard. Was he though? The the big another issue I had was I, I get that this movie, what it's trying to portray is this toxic masculinity be- within this household. He was hard on one of the boys who didn't have the physique or wasn't up to the others um, the others ilk when it came to wrestling. And he was more interested in being a musician than he was being a wrestler. That I got, but I didn't see him being too hard on these guys. There's one scene at the table, which is actually played off is kind of comical where he rate he literally rates all of his boys in order of preference in front of them but i didn't see him being this demonstrative uh father who pushed the others into where they are i mean we see him in the very beginning very beginning we have this scene this wrestling scene Uh, it's filmed in black and white and it's exactly as you depict uh matt Uh, it's it's in a wrestling gym you know and and it's uh you know people smoking cigars in the in the arena and uh and he gets out and you have the two boys in the back seat but i don't we don't ever we never really see him be push them into how they became i i think it's it's there enough and i like how it shifts like that conversation at the table that you alluded to earlier you could read that as him joking on some subconscious level, but I like that it gets more and more aggressive as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. Like it gets no more blatant than the big Christmas scene towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, but again, I also like that that scene, and I don't know if this is true to real life or not, that it doesn't end with like a fist fight or, you know, a big shouting match. Like it, it reaches an apex, but then it kind of uh, assimilates. Um, so, so from my standpoint, I thought this was... Because it's A24 and like this, I was expecting something like Whiplash, um, where it, okay. it's, that, it's that level of aggression, where it's like, yeah, I could see it within the context of a movie, but not necessarily real life. I thought this was 
like, you know, he treated them more like it was the military. Like, it's it's that kind of regiment and um, kind of that trying to live and imprint yourself. Because on some level, at your point, at any point in life, you have that mentor or coach that tries to mold you into something you're not. Um, whether that's out of, you know, their own self-worth or trying to imprint themselves on you. I think there's something universal about that that really uh, that really resonated here, um, you know. Because I, I I I'm glad this was not this was surprisingly low key, all things considered. Um, low key, for sure. Um, let's get to the big problem I had with this movie. The biggest problem I had. They omit a whole other brother from this movie. That's a problem. Um, this is a guy. Now, I have read interviews with the director. And what the justification he gives on it is, this movie's already filled with death. I didn't want, you know, we didn't want to completely, you know, we didn't want death to just completely take over this entire movie. And I didn't want to include him for that reason. And it's another suicide. You know, three of his, three of the boys commit a suicide. Yeah, two of them by gunshot. Yeah, two of them by gunshot. One of them by pills, which we see. Um, I don't know, man. That's a that the brother's name is Chris, and he was somebody who was a little apprehensive about wrestling, but he loved the sport so much he got in, and he didn't really have it. He didn't have what Carrie had. He didn't have what Kevin had. He didn't definitely didn't have what David had. He was looked at as the lesser of the Von Erics, and that's not in this movie, and that's a problem. Uh, what do you think about that omission? Did you hear about that? So I, I knew that, and I knew there was there was no justification that I could hear to excuse it. Um, but at the same time, I, I sort of understand the perspective that it it sort of be because what happens with Carrie is the last domino to fall. I could understand. I could understand the argument that, oh, it'd, it'd be the same thing over and over. I mean, right down to the fact that he, Kevin calls him and tells him, like, not to do anything stupid. Like, it, it, the scene would have played out almost identically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could understand that being seen as redundant. But the lack of a mention, um, you know, that that's kind of, poor choice of words, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, I, I understand, you know, making things cinematic, but I don't think that would have... I don't know. I'm of two minds about it. I don't think it's detrimental to the movie. Like, I'm not going to condemn it entirely uh, for for not being 100% true to life, but to not even give it a mention, especially because the oldest brother is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And shown. To not show the other end of the spectrum, it's a bit strange. Are we going to get to spoil? Well, we might as well get into spoilers. Yeah, I mean, it's a real-life story. It's kind of... Real-life story, yeah. Yeah, so... But... I will say, you know, for spoiler, to end the spoiler-free discussion, I would recommend you check this movie out if you're interested. Um, just be prepared uh, for to not leave you in the Christmas spirit, I will say that. Yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. Like, this is not an uplifter. <laughs> I think it no. was wrong to release this movie when they did. Um, but, you know, I would endorse it. A couple other things I wanted to talk about. Um... I mentioned Carrie before. I mentioned the performance. 
<laughs> the CGI of that leg. Oh, oh yeah, it was. Um, it was so bad. But I thought the way that beat was played was really well done. I did too. Where no, you know, yeah. it's him on the motorcycle. There's a there's a cut to black. He wakes up. He's in pain, and there's a there's a far shot of him on crutches. So you think like you know he's in a cast or something. Uh, uh-huh. And then you see his leg is missing. So I think it's, uh, as far as a filmmaking standpoint, I think it's a well-made movie. Um, but yeah, the it, it looked like um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a comparison to a movie where like they they had to remove someone's limb. Um, but I can't think of a good comparison. But it was bad. Yeah. Um, and then. They mentioned that, yeah, he has to wear the special boot, and wrestlers have talked about it, you know, since, since that he would put on this boot, and it was kind of an extension of his leg, and nobody really knew that he had that. And he's depicted in interviews as saying, yeah, they thought they were going to have to amputate it, but they didn't. I'm just, I'm still a fighter. And the reason they give in the Vice documentary, which I watched uh, this morning, is that the father didn't want them to look weak. You know, he they had all these deaths in the family, and they didn't want uh, Carrie to look weak. So it was their it was their choice to not show that. And you know, he, him going out there with that special boot—you don't realize it when you're watching the WWF matches from then. Um, it's it's pretty remarkable that he was able to pull that off. Uh, but you know, the, the the other thing is they show him going out to commit suicide and. You know, and they show the aftermath of Kevin finding him. What they don't show is what led to that. He was another one. He was he got hooked on drugs pretty quick. It, it, I think it started right after the Olympics were canceled that he was supposed to yeah. be in. I think he did it as like a coping mechanism. Coping mechanism. And then he, once he got in the accident, he got he had a ton of pain kills, which he got hooked on. And it he turned into a pretty big mess after that. To the point where he was going to trial the day he committed suicide um, uh, for drugs. And to not show that and to just kind of show him out there. And I get that the scene is really about Kevin and his reaction to it. And it's that only after this scene that he is actually able to show his emotion. And, you know, he's not crying throughout the entire movie. But when he does at the end, it's, it's like crazy emotional. Again, props to Zach Efron for that. Yeah, but, which we should probably mention, by the way. I was surprised how good he was. He was he was tremendous. Me too. I have to tip my yeah. cap because I, I, I've been waiting for him to get a role like this where he could Me actually too. show what yeah. he can. Because, look, his early stuff, yes, he can sing, he can dance, um, he's got screen presence. But this is the first time I've seen him actually really immerse himself in a character because he tried with the Ted Bundy movie. Uh but even by Ted Bundy standards, he's too good looking to play Ted Bundy. <laughs> it was um, not a good movie, too. Yeah, but but this was um, I was very impressed, and I think he is not being talked about enough for a possible award consideration. I agree. Especially considering I just watched a movie where Bradley Cooper put on a fake nose and pretended to talk nasally, uh, and that's getting all this praise. But Zac Efron is seemingly not. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie yet. I'm I'm planning on it. Uh, by the time we record our year-end show tomorrow, I was hoping to get to it. Um, but yeah, that was a issue I had. Was again, this movie's two hours thirteen minutes. So 
it's so hard to depict. But at the same time, I don't want a miniseries of this. You know, I no. didn't want that would have been depressing as fuck, and nobody would want to see that. I, I like the idea of making it a feature film. I just I question a lot of the omissions. Some are um, more some are more justifiable than others. Um, like, because I think it was fine to um, to cut down on the 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 turmoil of the promotion in and of itself, like their financial troubles. Agreed. Yeah. Because um, I thought they were going to talk about more once they revealed that he was fudging the books, so to speak. Um, you know, and not paying his talent what they should have been paid. Uh, which you know. Any, anyone who knows anything about wrestling, certain territories were notorious for that. Uh, I mean, look mm-hmm. at ECW. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's like that's like the textbook example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there are certain things that were more, and there are cliches in here that I thought were handled much better. Like, I think uh, Pam is given much more to do, and there's more to that role that it's typical of these kind of movies. Um, and I've seen her in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, um, she's good. Yeah. I've always liked Lily James. Um, like I said, I thought Zach Efron was great. The mom. I did not know more tyranny was in this. Yeah, I was getting to her. Yeah, we've really praised Zach Efron's performance. There was one other one I was going to praise, and that was Mira Tierney. She is depicted as being more of a housewife than she actually was. She was mo- she ran a lot of the promotion, a lot of the promotion, a lot of the world class promotion that they had. Um, and she's not really depicted as that in this, but she doesn't need to have that role in this. I think that was a wise omission too. I think just the way she plays off everything that's happening around her and the emotion behind it is tremendous. I think she is amazing in this movie. Yeah, this is a movie that really. I, I think the strongest parts are. I mean, first of all, if you're not emotionally touched by the last ten minutes of this movie, I, I you have no soul. you have no soul. Mm-hmm. Um, like Efron's last scene almost killed me. Yeah, um, it was yeah uh, devastating. And the <sighs> we're in the spoilers now, so I normally hate in movies where we get scenes in the afterlife. All right, where well, I was going to get to this, go ahead. Um, this this one did not bother me, and I and I can't quantify exactly why. You um, know why? I think it's because wrestling is so larger than life in and of itself that doing something this grandiose and schmaltzy was totally okay with me. Because um, you got the closure with the oldest brother coming back into the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of getting, you know, you needed a, a, a shining light of optimism at the end of this movie, and I think this this provided it. You know why it didn't bother me, Matt? Because me and uh, my friend James, once we got out of the theater, we talked about this. If it was depicted as the very last scene and we cut to credits, that would have been an insult because it's depicting exactly what happened. What it does is it cuts from that to Kevin over Carrie's body. And we're seeing Kevin imagine it. And I think that is what sells it. And that is why I wasn't against it either. So, all right, let's get to our scores. Um, Scale of 1 to 10, what do you give Darren Clauser? So, uh, this movie exceeded my expectations, I'll say that. Um, I, I wonder how I would feel about this movie is if I was not a wrestling fan or enthusiast in any way. Um, I, I wonder how that would affect my overall viewing. 
But I gotta say, you know, someone I also have to praise is Chavo Guerrero. He was very integral uh-huh. in how the the actors performed in wrestling. You know, he trained Zac Efron to take bumps and uh, do things like that because apparently they shot like full 10, 12 minute matches and just chose mm-hmm. the parts that were best. But as a as a lover of sports films, you know, this is the anti boxing movie in that boxing films are, are notoriously very optimistic and feel-good stories outside of the champ. Like, that's the one outlier. But, you know, you think of the Rocky movies, they're all about, you know, being uplifting and, you know, giving you something aspirational. This is aspirational, too, in the sense of Kevin being able to still live his life and, you know, overcome the tragedies that sadly defined it. But at the end of the day, this is a... It's it's a sports movie second. You know, this is a, a, a character study first under the guise of, of professional wrestling. And I think that's the movie's biggest strength. I think that's why it works as well as it does. Um, and this is... Um, it's been a while since I've seen something of this ilk that that knows what it is doing. Like, it's a, it's a very effective drama. I think this is a star-making role for Zac Efron in a different type of sense than what he's done beforehand. And this is a story that could have been too tragic to be palatable, but there's still a warmth in this movie with the way the brothers interact. Um, you know, the family dynamics are really strong, so I think that helps set the stage for the second half of this movie when everything just starts to pile up one after another. Uh, This is one of my favorite movies of the year. I think it's one of the best movies of the year as well. I don't know where it would rank in my top ten, but I think it's certainly in that that range. But I do have to put the disclaimer out that this is not, you know, if you're looking for a sports movie that's going to make you feel good, uh, this really isn't it. But if you can prepare yourself and put down your your misnomers about the industry and just try to watch it as a movie. I think you'll get a lot out of it. So I'm going to give this uh, I'm going to give this a very very strong eight on ten. Uh, so I would be able to get back in the ring at the count of uh, at, the, at the count of ten, and I'll be very curious to see if this will lead to more, if not sad wrestling movies more like real-life stories. Like, maybe this will inspire that Hulk Hogan movie to actually get made, or maybe we'll get something about, you know, if you're looking for something tragic, not that I not that I want to see this, but if they make a Montreal Screwjob movie, it wouldn't surprise me. Or, you know, an Owen Hart biopic, I could see that. Um, or one about, about the Chris- completely, or one about the Hart family, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, heart, the Hart's, you know... The funks, because they're like the hearts without the embarrassments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a. Uh, uh, I was surprised how much I liked this. I really was. Interesting. Now, let me ask you something before I get to my score. Is Christian a wrestling fan or no? None whatsoever. None <laughs> whatsoever. Outside the superficial. <laughs> okay, so him and Jen are the exact same. Then I want to ask you: Do you think a movie like this? would appeal now you mentioned you had non-wrestling fans in your audience but do you think it would appeal to the non-wrestling fan do you think they got out of there enjoying it 
enjoyment in the sense that they recognized it as a good, effective movie. But mm. I, I don't think the fact that it's wrestling is going to turn a lot of people off. Like I, I because I don't think it goes too far into the weeds to lose people or to paint wrestling in such a negative way that it would turn off people who kind of, you know, lift their nose at it. Yeah, I kind of agree with that, although I don't know I don't think Jen would like this, honestly. I I don't think no, this would appeal to her. I, like I don't think it's for everyone in the sense that if you don't if you are just against like routinely sad movies um, like, you know, because I think of movies like Kramer versus Kramer, where it's like, yeah, it's really well made and it's touching, but it's not for everyone. Um, and I think if you're someone who has dealt with uh, sibling loss or, um, you know, complicated relationships with your family, it's going to be, it'll put you through the ringer. All right. So I'm going to do something I have never done. Um either on the main show or our year-end shows or shows where we review, where we have ever given a review. I tried my damnedest to try to give this a, give this one score. I can't. I'm going to give this movie two scores. My first score is going to be as just a movie fan, as somebody who is coming in to see exactly what Matt described, which is, you know, the this family and this sports impact on them and everything that happens to them. If you're coming in just expecting a good dramatic movie, or you're coming in just, you know, expecting the sadness that comes with being in the industry and as somebody who is not a wrestling fan and is going to expect a good movie, I'm going to give this Matt's exact score of an eight. I think the performances here are tremendous for the most part. Um, I think Ric Flair could have been brought on as an advisor, maybe. <laughs> um, besides just Chavo, I think there could have been some work done there. But honestly, this isn't about that. You know, we, we didn't even mention in our review, but there's one scene where uh, Kevin's trying to give a promo. And uh, somebody is over there just fucking with him. And it, it, it's fucking up his timing, and he gets so upset. And I think it's a really nice way of outlining, outlining that industry and the, just the work they put into it and... I think people are going to get a kick out of that kind of stuff, and um, and as a, as a huge dramatic movie, just given the performances, given what this director has to do, Sean Durkin is his name, solid eight. As a wrestling fan, uh, as somebody who, as I mentioned, grew up with this story, um, knew it very well, and was taken by the tragedy tragedy behind it, I can't get past the omissions. I can't get past the things that they did to streamline this. And I understand why, with the exception of taking Chris completely out of it. I understand why. But at the same time, if you put him in, I think it, it helps outline it even more. Uh, they don't even, they, at the table they mention, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Fritz who mentions it, that they moved there because, you know, tragic things have happened there, quote-unquote. A lot of stuff has happened to us. And they don't mention why. Well, one of the things was the oldest son got electrocuted by a trailer, <laughs> of all things. Like, it's crazy. Um, and so I'm going to say, as a wrestling fan, as somebody who knew this story, as somebody who came in wanting to see it depicted in a mostly accurate way, I'm going to go with the six. Um, I just think there's just too much taken out for its own good. 
um, for people as wrestling fans. And I think people should go to this movie. And if you are curious about seeing more of it, go to Hulu and the Dark Side of the Ring Vice documentary is right there. It's 45 minutes. And I think it does an even better job of depicting everything that happened in this family. And in the movie, they don't even mention the fact that they even they made up a brother. <laughs> once, uh, once David died, they were like, "Well, we got to fill that void." So they flat out made somebody Lance Van Lance Von Eric. They just wrote somebody as being the brother, and he wasn't really taken in that well by fans and stuff like that's taken out. And I don't know. I just the movie for one scene. Was, oh, he's there for one. Yeah, you see him in the background, but you don't know, you know, who the hell he is. Yeah, um, he's a producer of the movie. That's uh, MJF, yeah. the current yeah. AEW champion. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I guess outside of Chavo, he's like the other, you know, big person. But I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of like, you know, I would have loved to see like Jim Ross be a producer on this. Or oh yeah, uh, you know, it's sad that like Terry Funk's no longer with us, but he would have been a, a good person. Um, yeah. I hate to say it, but Jeff Jarrett. How how uh, painful was that for you to say, sir? Oh God! Like I, I almost had a hemorrhoid saying that. <laughs> I I heard the name Jerry Jarrett, and I my heart clenched like, oh God, Matt's gonna hate this. Um, but yeah, I think as a wrestling fan, it's a six. But as a fan of good movies and fan of well, well told stories, an eight. All right, well, Matt, I am a few hours away from seeing uh, the re- the movie that's gonna cap off. Um, are 2024. I am a little ways away from seeing Ferrari. Um, I know you have already seen it. We're going to record that tomorrow. We're also recording the year-end show. Um, so this show and next week's show are going to be past our norm. We're not going to do a typical retrospective. We're going to do our year-end shows. If you have any questions, please put it in the comments or message us or do whatever it is you can do uh, to get to us. And uh, we will answer those questions on the air. And uh, we have our year all lined up. We're excited for it. Uh, we'll, reveal, we'll reveal a little bit of that next week as well as our top 10 favorites and maybe our top least favorites. Who knows? But um, last year's show was a three-and-a-half-hour epic. We'll see how this week's goes. But, Matt, I'd like to thank you for joining me for this review of the Iron Claw, sir. I knew I wanted to review it. I knew I wanted to review it with the man I've been doing these wrestling podcasts with and you were the perfect choice i don't thank you for coming on sir oh pleasure as always i made and the hot thank- ta- i made the hot tag no problem <laughs> literally a last minute thing yesterday i'm like i got out of the movie i'm like matt i think we should do this and you uh, agreed to it thank you yeah, I also like to one- we both saw it the same day yeah yeah i also like to thank nicolette for joining me thank you my dear uh, go check out her youtube channel she's got a lot of fun stuff going on and it was a pleasure to talk to her as well to kind of end the year but sir this is our last show of 2023 and uh here's to 2024 uh see you guys next week thank you